Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This programme was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. I'm Claire Finlayson, Programme Director of the Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival. The 2019 festival recording that you're about to hear was brought to you with funding from a copyright licensing New Zealand grant and with the support of ORFM. This session, Gavin Bishop, was chaired by David Elliott and supported by Extra. Enjoy. Tēnā koutou. Um, my name is David Elliott and I'm going to read this because it's a bit early in the morning. So... <laughs> But um, I'm a writer and illustrator working and living in Port Chalmers. It's my privilege to welcome you all here today for a conversation with Gavin Bishop. A discussion about his writing and illustration that I'm sure um, will be enlightening to us all, and I'm looking forward to it, and I hope you are too. Um, but first, though, a bit of housekeeping. Um, I'd like to thank Extra, who don't appear to be there, they are down the bottom there, for sponsoring Gavin here today. So now, Gavin. Um, I'm sure you're all very familiar with, with Gavin and his work, but I thought we should just go over it a little bit. He's written uh, and illustrated more than 60 books, and among his achievements are the Margaret Mahi Award for Services to Children's Literature in 2000, an honorary doctorate from Canterbury University in 2016, the Sikingi Ihaka Award for Services to Māori Art and Culture in 2018, and he was made an officer of the Order of Merit in 2013. I would also like to acknowledge on behalf of the illustrators of New Zealand, um, and I think there are a few of them in the audience today, um, for Gavin's commitment to our craft and his work on our behalf, both as a mentor and particularly his work with Painted Stories, which is a digital collection of New Zealand illustration associated with the Canterbury uh, with the Christchurch Library, which some of you might know about. And Gavin has been heavily involved in that over the years. Um, and for just the sheer quality and professionalism of his books that have served as an example to us all. Uh, his efforts over the many years were recognised in the establishment of the Storylines of Gavin Bishop Award for New Illustrators in 2013. The book we will be talking about uh, to begin with today, Aotearoa, Roa. Aotearoa won the Supreme Margaret Mahi Book of the Year Award and the Elsie Locke Award for Nonfiction at the 2018 New Zealand Book Awards for Children and Young Adults. The judges praised it as a book of enduring significance in the canon of New Zealand children's literature, a landmark title that will stand the test of time. And I have to say, too, that accolades come in all kinds of different forms. I've got a a little collection of illustration at home in my hall, which uh, has some nice work in it. It's got a particularly nice Robin Belton. It's got a couple of tiny little Sean Tans and uh, even an E.H. Shepherd. And um, I have a, just had a new grandchild born. Her name's Ty and she's three months old. 
And there's Gavin Bishop on the wall, along with all those other illustrators. And do you think I could get that kid past Gavin's drawing without her hooting and squealing? (laughs) (laughs) She ignored all the others. So I'm going to have to work on her a wee bit (laughs) to widen her perceptions a little bit. But it was very interesting to see. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, Gavin Bishop. One of the things about this, of course, is that we need, Gavin needs um, his illustrations to show and to uh, relate to the questions that I'm going to be asking. So we have talked together a wee bit before this about what I'm going to ask Gavin so that he can bring along the pictures. So um, the first thing I'd like to ask Gavin is um, we're talking about this book here at Iroa, and also we've got another book we're going to talk about a little bit later on. Cook's Cook, that's the latest book that Gavin has just brought out with, Ran, uh, with um, Gecko Press. And uh, I'm very interested in how both these books were put together, where the ideas for them came from. And so um, where did the initial ideas come from for um, Gavin? Um, for Aotearoa? Sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the book was actually initiated by the editors at the publishing house of uh, Penguin Random House. I mean, I didn't think of it. But one day I got a telephone call from Catherine O'Loughlin, and uh, she said, would you be interested in doing a large format history of New Zealand, a picture book, but we'll double up the pages. Instead of there being 32, we'll have 64. And the page size will be like almost twice the size of a normal picture book. And I said, fantastic, I'd love to do that. That's absolutely wonderful. And about two days later, I woke up at about two o'clock in the morning and thought, my God, I can't do that. It's too huge, it's too big. Because, of course, they wanted it, like, you know, tomorrow. <laughs> uh, it was actually a year. Uh, and I thought, a year? I can't possibly do all the research and do all the illustrations in a year for a book that big. And uh, I said, what sort of period do you want me to cover? And they said, oh, well, perhaps you could start, you know, like 65 million years ago (laughs) up to the present day on 64 pages. I said, oh, okay. So I realised that what they were talking about was the uh, big sort of asteroid that hit the Earth, they think, about 65 million years ago. And they think it hit the Earth somewhere near Mexico and made a hole 35 kilometres deep. Well, it plunged the whole of the world into a kind of a three- or four-year winter, and everything died, and uh, including all the dinosaurs and plants and everything like that. And I thought, well, that's, that will be my starting point, and I will, instead of come bringing this, the world back again all over the world, I'll bring it back just in the Pacific. And so that's what I did. I started... Um, I started in the Pacific and started talking about life in the Pacific and how the islands in the Pacific suddenly became overcrowded and the inhabitants, who later became Māori in New Zealand, um, had to find somewhere else to live. And so I started reading and researching because, honestly, I I knew very, very little. I knew practically nothing about any of this. So I started reading, you know, Anne Salmon and people like that and read and read and read all this stuff. And then um, I discovered that there were 
Well, when I was at school, we were told so much rubbish about the history of New Zealand. We really, really were. You know, I'm talking, no, 60 years ago. We were told a whole lot of crap. And uh, we were told that the Maori arrived here in seven canoes. What? Just rubbish. You know, I, I started reading and found that there were waves of um, waka, hundreds of waka that came down from the Pacific Islands and eventually arrived and settled in parts of Aotearoa. It wasn't the first time that he'd been here. There's, there is... Um, verbal histories, oral histories, that tell us that the Māori had been coming to Aotearoa for, I don't know, thousands of years, I think, a very, very long time, but they just didn't choose to settle. They found there are pieces of stone that come from specific parts of Aotearoa. They found them in the islands uh, in the Pacific. And there was no way they could have got there unless somebody had been here, picked up this stone and taken it back. So there was very interesting information. And I had to boil it all down (laughs) to just a few sentences here and there and amongst a whole lot of pictures. So, sorry, this is long-winded. No, that's perfect, Adam. Thank you. But that was my starting point. I thought, well, I'll start with the first people that came here and how they arrived and what beliefs they brought with them. And I think one of my pages I said, and they brought their gods with them. Mm. And that was a very important part of their world because unlike Christianity, the Maori had gods for everything. You know, every, every, there were deities for every um, conceivable thing. So, did you find this, given your own um, family background, Gavin, did you find this significant for you, this idea of researching? Um... Yes, I did, because uh, one of my mother's names was Hinapo. And we've done a little bit of research into that specific name, and it seems as if it was one of the names that originated in the Pacific Islands. It wasn't something that, 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 that was developed here. It was actually a name that was bought with some early ancestors to Aotearoa, you know, 800 years ago. And so I thought that was very interesting. So that's why I decided to uh, use that name and the idea of her spirit living on uh, throughout the whole book. And it's a thread that runs through the whole book. I don't know whether... Uh, no, I haven't. I have a good I'll have to find this. Yet. I found this particularly interesting. We were talking earlier on before, um, before you arrived and when I was just talking to Gavin about the scheme that he would have had to have in his mind when he was putting this, picture, the, this book together. And I'll, get him to, I'll get him to talk to a little yeah. bit further about that in a minute. But all the way through here, on the we next have... Page. The next one, I think. Next page. Yeah, this is there, see? Giving her mihi. Oh, there she is, right. Right down the bottom with Sinipo. And she turns up again and again as a little, um, Little, well, almost like an icon or a presence. A little wairua. Yeah, all the way through the book. And it's beautiful to find her all the way through it. Um, And that's something that I found very interesting, and being an illustrator myself, is that when Gavin was putting this book together, I believe they were taking 
pieces of work away from you, Gavin, yeah. before you actually... So usually an illustrator would end up with all the things sitting in front of him at the end of his... Yeah. that he's finished the book. Then he'd be able to work and change things. But this yeah, had a different... The, well, there was, pr- there was huge pressure to get this book finished by a particular time. <clears throat> you know, we had a deadline. It had to go off and be printed. It had to be edited. Um, it was a huge input from other people, not just me. There was a whole army of people who... Uh, worked on this book and checked everything and sorted everything out and so on. And the the way that we decided right at the beginning to achieve this was to for me to design the whole book, decide what was going to go on each page, do a full page drawing in pencil, and then start the artwork. And so what I was doing is I was working chronologically through the book and finishing about eight or ten pages at a time, and then sending those to the to the um, scanner, and the scanner would scan them and send those few pages to the designers, because the designers had an enormous job of putting all the text into place. They had to drop it into all these little gaps, and sometimes I made the gaps too small, because I got terribly carried away when I was doing the drawing and I forgot that there was text go on the page. And luckily, in this day of sort of digital imagery, um, the designers were able to sometimes even reduce parts of my drawing. They could take a little object and just make it shrink it a little bit to make there was a bit more space underneath it so they could get a bit more text in. And so we worked on that. Now, one of the, one of the things I'm, I'm sort of neurotic about is keeping the book sort of consistent um, colour-wise. So what I did was I decided that there was a particular kind of blue I was going to use for the sky through the whole book. So I mixed up a yoghurt pot full of blue paint, blue ink, and that was my blue for the sky. And I used it on every picture through the whole book. And then I did the same with some of the other colours. Um, so that's, that's how I kept a kind of consistency um, through, through and the other side of it, I was realising, Gavin, there's this, um, I'm not sure what you would call this, at the bottom here. That's the, Papa Tuanuku, uh, the Earth yeah. Mother, and she continues, this is her body here, she continues over <clears throat> all those opening pages <clears throat> that tell us about the um, Maori, early Maori history, and then eventually she starts to sort of become kind of more ornamental. And finally, we just mm, see a little tiny piece of her at the end where Europeans start arriving and a whole new way of seeing the world arrives. And you notice that there's, so a, there's a border there's around, a border around yes, the outside. That's right, yeah, yeah, that's right. So things start to tighten up. We start seeing rulers and lines and uh, navigational instruments and things being used to create the imagery. So this kind of organic... Uh, sort of free-flowing uh, shape to everything that we see in those early pages, it, it gets lost or it gets overwhelmed. Um, and so that's why those early pages um, are replaced by these square um, And then you have a, seem to have another code. That code, is to, that code is to indicate that that page is a kind of survey. Right. Whereas all the other pages without that are a kind of continuum. But that indicates that that looks at everything from mm. the year dot until now, sort of. 
it's a kind of a survey of education. And then education. Uh, we return to the... Yeah, she comes back. She comes back. I think it's a lovely idea, um, the way he's tied the, the book together like that. But also, I think, from my point of view, when I was looking at it, I got a real sense of um, Aotearoa as a living creature itself, as a, as a, as a growing and, uh, yeah, just, just the, the life of our country. And I thought it was a lovely motif to put all the way through. It's a very personal view yes. of the history of New Zealand. I mean, it's the story of New Zealand, according to me, and yeah, and we we actually <laughs> we're all there. We actually feature on some of the pages. I couldn't resist. That was great. I couldn't resist putting a drawing of myself, at the age of two, dressed up to go to town in Invercargill with my grandmother. Right. Um, and there's my uncle Jack at the races, and um, and so on and so on. So they're all wearing clothing. It, the page is about clothing, so. It was legitimate. <laughs> you got your old teacher, Russell Clark, in there as well. Yes. Yes, that's right. Yes. Um, <laughs> when you're putting these together, I mean, I'm not sure how many spreads there are in this book, Kevin. Uh, uh, 32, 32 spreads. Okay. Mm. So you must have some favourites for different reasons. Um, um, I like this one here. Right. Um, because it has lots of elements that I think uh, people are unaware of or not, not sure about. Um, this is just a selection of some of the waka that came to Aotearoa over many generations. Uh, some Maori people have said to me, but our waka's not there. I said, I'm sorry, but I can't, couldn't fit every waka onto that page. Mm. There's only one page for the waka. So if your waka's not there, then you have to do your own book and put that in <laughs> <laughs> Put it you've shown us a couple more, I think, Rob Gavin, that you've seen uh, the one? next couple of slides. Yeah, this one and the next one. Okay, well. this yeah. one is um, a slide without the text. So you can see that there are gaps everywhere, and that's where the text is going to be. This was, a hard, this was quite a challenge. This was, it, when you've only got like two pages, so one, one spread for each subject that you're dealing with, you have to be very particular about what it is you want to include on that page. Well, there have been a lot of children's books about the First World War published in the last few years. There are lots of them. And so I thought, well, what? Well, you know, I've got to come up with something a little bit different. So I thought, well, over on this side here, I will concentrate on animals, because animals played a really big part in the First World War. I mean, hundreds of thousands of horses were slaughtered and killed. 10,000 horses went from New Zealand and never returned. You know, it was just heartbreaking to read about these things. Um, I also read about Edith Cavill. Now, I've always driven across the Edith Cavill Bridge just out of um, uh, Queenstown, and I never, ever knew who she was. But she was a, a British nurse who helped to save wounded soldiers, and she was eventually executed by the Germans. And when this bridge just out of uh, Queenstown was built some years ago. People called it the Edith Cavill Bridge, unofficially. Um, Second World War, back to another family story. This is my dad, who went away with the first echelon in 1939 to fight in Alamein. And he was just a sort of an ordinary old guy. And uh, I thought, I'll pop him in. I quite like the fact that he's there with Charles Altham and, and Adolf Hitler. 
So he's, so he's, this be, is, this he's is become his famous. The text. Yeah. Um, the other thing, from an illustration point of view, is, is you'll notice the the change in colour scheme for the, and I think that you use colour really well in this book, Gavin, to to try and indicate what's going on. Yeah. In the book. Especially yeah. these these ones, I think that they work really well. Yes. Con- contrasting. Yeah. Mm. Yes, I, I thought, well, you mentioned a few of the things that, that, that you found interesting, but always in researching some of the, a book like this, yeah. you're going to get caught up in little sidelines, little yeah. sidetracks of things that you found fascinating or particularly pertinent to you personally or something like that. Is it, were the things that you found that you mentioned, the animals, and which I think was a really lovely part of the book <clears> all the way through because you um, mentioned them several times. Well, one of the things I found extraordinary, and it's, it's really because I haven't really taken the time to find out more about it, was the flu epidemic right. that was brought back to New Zealand uh, at the end of the First World War. I mean, 8,000 people in New Zealand died of the flu, and 6,000 of those were Maori. We don't know anything like this. We don't, we're not told this is what happened. And more people died of the flu than had died at, in the First World War. You know, New Zealanders. It was... Amazing. Um, so, yeah, that was one of the, that was a huge revelation. One of the things I found really interesting, looking through it myself, was the depression that happened in the eighteen yes. eighties and the eighteen nineties, after which I had the no land idea. war, that's after right. the New Zealand wars. Yes, that's right. New Zealand wars are something that plunged the whole country into the most desperate state. The difference <coughs> in writing and illustrating for non-fiction versus storytelling and the way that you think about your illustration. Yeah. And also in your writing, of course. Well, the writing, of course, is going to be naturally differently. But, I mean, the layout and the way that you would design a book for um, a picture book and and storytelling rather than actually just projecting page after page of facts in a sequence. Yes, yeah, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about how you think about those two different jobs? Well, this is another another book that was initiated by somebody else. I didn't necessarily want to do a book about the endeavour because I think there's a lot of stuff out there about Cook's voyages, yeah. huge amount of stuff. And there have been a lot of children's books written about uh, the voyage of the endeavour, uh, especially by Australian writers because, of course, they claim Cook. <laughs> he never came to New Zealand. Uh-huh. Um, so I started thinking and I said to the people at Gecko Press, do, you really, do we really need another book about um, James Cook? And they said, well, we think so. So I started reading yet again, book after book about the voyages of Captain Cook. He wasn't captain, actually, when he came to New Zealand on that first uh, voyage. Uh, and I came across a list of the people who were on board when the ship left Plymouth um, in England. And there was a list of all these people and their occupations. And I came across this person called John Thompson Cook. Now, the name jumped out at me because I used to teach with a guy called John Thompson at Christ College years and years ago. And the name jumped out, and I thought, what if he's any relative? You know, So I thought, that could be interesting to find out about John Thompson, the cook. So I found out this little bit of information that said that he was probably Scottish and he had only one hand. 
he'd lost his right hand. And it was quite common, I believe, in those days for the um, Navy to find work for people who'd been um, hurt or yeah. Long John Silver is another one. Is it? Yeah, yeah exactly the same. Same, same, yeah, same, same story. Yeah, yeah. Well, seemingly the first cook that was sent along uh, to, to work on the Endeavour had only one leg. And James Cook sent him back so he wouldn't have him. So <clears throat> they sent him another cook, this time, without, with one hand. And James Cook wasn't very pleased about that either. And they were, he was going to send him back, and they said, sorry, that's it. That's who you've got. That's going to be your cook. Well, actually, he turned out to be obviously quite, quite efficient. Um, he had a bit of help. Um, and, but James Cook himself never mentioned him in any of his journals. And he wrote about everything. You know, he covered everything. But he never, ever mentioned it. And he never even mentioned the poor old guy when he died. Now, I don't know how old he was. I don't know how old he was. I don't even know anything about him. So there was the challenge. Mm. I had to make up a story about somebody I knew nothing about except they had one hand, and he was probably Scottish, and he was, had to be a cook. I don't know whether he was a cook before he started, but cooking on the Endeavour was pretty basic anyway. Most of it, was, most of it involved boiling stuff, making porridge, peas porridge, and boiling meat salted meat um, on most days. And when other ingredients became available, they were cooked. Um, Joseph Banks, who was also on the same uh, voyage, he did commend uh, this guy on a couple of occasions and said that he had cooked shark and things particularly well. And he said his, I think it was his cuttlefish soup was some of the best he'd ever tried. But that's about all I could find about this guy. So my challenge was to make up a story that sort of included some of the uh, actual historical details around the voyage of the Endeavour, but the rest of it, most of the story is based on eating and food um, and cooking. And so there are recipes um, throughout the book. This is from the end papers, and it's just an introduction to uh, the ship and the crew. There were 94 men on that ship. It was designed to take a crew of 16 initially when it was first built. It was a collier. It was built to uh, transfer coal and timber. And that's what cat-built collier means. Cat means coal and timber. I didn't know that. had no idea. But I found that out. And it was really interesting. So, um, and this is a kind of a cross-section view of inside. They put in some extra decks below deck and put in some extra cabins for junior officers and so on. They were so small you couldn't stand up on them. They were tiny. Um, and I also read that the junior officers were particularly scungy. They never washed and they didn't clean their cabins and they reckoned the smell of the cabins was worse than the bilge water in the ship. Anyway, um, most of the men on, the, on board the ship, all 70 of the crew, lived below deck in, this, in these quarters here where all the cooking, all the food was prepared uh, and eaten. And um, I found also that there were a lot of 
things that we still use in everyday language, like we talk about having a good square meal. Well, it's because the mariners' um, plates were square and wooden. Um, there's lots of things like that. So I found it was it interesting to yeah, yeah. it's uh, well, I, when I was looking at it, Gavin, I, it seemed to be almost like a hybrid book between, say, a book like Aotearoa yeah. and perhaps one of your picture books. Yes, yeah. Which would be building up to climax, a sort of a climax somewhere in the, in the storytelling, yeah. wouldn't it? which would be reflected in the way you're illustrating and using your spreads, whereas the, you alternate between different ways of presenting the information, but it doesn't particularly, I think, unless... Um, yes, so that, that's right. A crisis. Well, the challenge was to involve the cook in some of the incidents and historical incidents that were taking place on the voyage. Um, so I decided, because, you know, this was a kind of uh, exploration technique at the time, where you, you sailed around everywhere and you, you, you renamed everything. It didn't matter that the whole of Aotearoa was completely covered in names. Everything had been named right down to even the smallest insects and creatures in the sand. Everything had been named by Maori. But Cook wasn't interested in that. He renamed everything. And he seemingly sailed around the coasts, shouting out, calling out names, saying, well, that mountain's, you know, Egmont, that's something else, and so on. And I thought it could be fun to have the Cook hoping that one of these things <laughs> is going to be named after here. him. <laughs> and he keeps suggesting it on these pages. He keeps saying, but, you know, when, uh, he says, oh, Mount Thompson? And Cook says, Mount Egmont. You know, that sort of stuff. So, I think it's a very, very clever book. And so right at the very end, it, when he, he turns into a seagull, there he is over there, you see, with one clipped wing, um, and he's su- suggesting that the porridge be named after him. <laughs> so he, he's whittled down. He's, he's lowered his view. <laughs> his ambitions. His ambitions. His ambitions. Um, he's reduced them. So did you try any of the recipes yourself? Hell no. No, not I'm the not dog? I'm not going to go shoot an albatross. <laughs> <laughs> Although I, do- I believe Polynesian dog was particularly delicious. Because, um, and as, as it says in the book... Um, Cook himself, Captain Cook, uh, said it was as good as English lamb. And that's because the Polynesian dogs were vegetarian and they weren't, you know, they were actually kind of um, pampered and petted and looked after very, in a very gentle way. But when, 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 it was ne- when something special was needed for, for a, a barbecue or a special party, they just popped the old pooch into the umu and, and ate them. Um, and, of course, Māori brought them to Aotearoa as well. And the kuri were here until the early 1900s when they said interbreeding with introduced European dogs finally wiped them out and they disappeared. There are a few stuffed ones in collections. I think Te Papa has one. Uh, but they don't exist anymore. And I met some people from Tahiti recently at a school I was visiting, and I said, do you have any of the original Polynesian kuri uh, in Tahiti? They said, no, all gone. And so they've, they've sort of disappeared. And, of course, the other animal that the Maori bought with them were rats, and that's one of the uh, 
Oh, here's a page about, there's the recipe out there for uh, dog and breadfruit stew. I reckon it'd be pretty good. And here is a kind of confrontation between coming together of two uh, culinary um, approaches. We've got the cook with his bowl of porridge, and we've got this Maori in uh, Queen Charlotte Sound holding up a uh, kiori, a rat, suggesting, they're both suggesting to one another, try this, this is something you might like to try as a bit of a change. Um, there, were, <laughs> there were quite a few difficult decisions that we had to make uh, when, we write, when I was writing this book. I'm going to say we, because I discuss this a lot with uh, Rachel Lawson, the editor at Gecko Press. And I said, what are we going to do about cannibalism? And she said, well, perhaps we could leave it out. And I said, well, you know, it was a quite, a, quite a big feature. It was quite a, a um, sort of a devastating thing for uh, James Cook to come across, especially on some of the later voyages. Um, so I said, well, I'm going to include it in the text. And also, when I was in Queen Charlotte Sound, out on, um, I met somebody up there whose family have lived there since the time of James Cook and since the time of the voyage of the Endeavour. And they said, look, we'll tell you a story that you might like to include in your book because nobody else has ever, ever published this story. And they said, there was a woman who lived, who was very highly born, who had a lot of taonga, lots of treasures that belonged to her family, beautifully carved um, ponamu, all sorts of things like that. She had this big collection, and she gave the whole lot to James Cook in return for a bag of sugar. She'd never tasted sugar before. She took the bag of sugar and climbed up to the top of the hill behind where she lived, and poured it into the water, to the stream, because she was hoping to turn it into sweet water. Wairika, she called it. And that's mentioned, and that's in here on that page. Um, and I was very grateful to get that little, little bit of information. Just... Both your books, Aotearoa and Cook's Cook, deal with that, that the... One the the clash of those two cultures in a way, or at least they certainly cover them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it must have been very interesting, especially with Aotearoa, and you're saying that you had um, advisors. Presumably, you must have had um, Maori academics and people advising you as well. Yeah, yes. Um, did Did you form your own? Mainly with the language, right? Okay, not with the history at all. No. Okay. No, no, mainly language. All right. So you and have you developed a, a personal opinion about those? I know that we're going to have a cook um, sent in bicentenary or two hundred and fifty years. It's so, not some people year. have been um, some people have been upset mm. by that. But I, my daughter's quite heavily involved in it because she is the director of the Millennium Gallery in Blenheim, right? And the people in the sounds want to commemorate the time that the Endeavour spent out at, Cook, out at Ship Cove. Mm. They're not celebrating it. No, they want they're to... They're commemorating right. it. 
And they're talking about the coming together of the people in that area. Mm. And a lot of people, the descendants, are still there, still in that area, mm. still living there. Um, so that's how I see this book too. I, I don't see it as kind of a celebration of Cook coming to New Zealand. I'm just, it's just a historical sure. thing that took place and it had a huge impact. You'll notice also in this picture the rats running off the ship. That's one of the things that he did when the ship um, was in Queen Charlotte Sound. He actually connected the ship to the land with ropes and gangplanks and boards and things and encouraged the rats to run off into the bush. Thank you very much, Captain Croft. <laughs> Goodbye, <laughs> Goodbye, native bird. We better, we better um, move on a little okay, bit, Gavin. Right, right. Um, I just want to brief, I'll briefly sure, talk about of this, course. One, this yes, of course. Um, This is another thing that I found in my readings is that at this time the um, mariners, the seamen, believed that when a sailor died, he turned into a seabird. And so here is our cook down here. To, he died. He died of dysentery. Um, and he is turning into a, a seabird. And so that's it. Yeah. Yes, well, the next thing I'd like to ask you about, Gavin, is your family <clears throat> stories are a big part of your work. Yeah. And you've used them on the basis of many of your books. Uh, I've got one of them here, beautiful piano rock. It's all about your childhood in Kingston. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that? I know you've got some pictures. To... Um, yeah, well, I was born in Invercargill and brought up down there, and really I knew very, very little about um, my mother's family. I knew that my dad's family came from Dunedin. And, <clears throat> excuse me, and mum always said that her father had told her that when she was born, he gave her all the names. Well... That meant nothing to any of us. I don't know what he was... We didn't even know what, what she was talking about, neither did she. But her names... Well, she was called Doris. But her other two names are Irihapeti and Hinapo. Well, I didn't realise, and neither did she, that her father was actually giving her her whakapapa. But he never told her that. Um, well, there's a kind of strange hiccup on her side of the family. Her father was nearly 70 when she was born, when my mother was born. So that means he was born in 1843, three years after the first signings of the Treaty of Waitangi. He was born. And so I, it, this is huge part of me. think, you know, it's a kind of um, a great regret that I was never able to meet him or any of his family because it, it, it just didn't work out. Like he was had been dead for 10 years by the time I was born. And it was never, was, would never have worked. Um, but I came across some of these photographs of his mother. Now, she must have been quite a celebrity in her time because there are lots of these photographs and they're all studio photographs taken by professional Pākehā photographers in places like Thames in the Coromandel. Now, she was from, she was Tainui, She's from, from the Waikato. And there were lots of photographs, and there were some in Te Papa, and they don't have any names. don't even have her name on them. But I know that her name was Irihapeti, one of mum's names, Haho. And she was the mother of my grandfather. She married a Scotsman and became Irihapeti or Elizabeth Mackay. 
She had 12 children. Grandfather was one. Now, in 1990, my brother and I decided that it was time we found out a bit more about Mum's family from up north. We were particularly interested in the Maori connection. So we said, what are we going to do? He said, well, I do know that some of them came from Whakatane. Why don't we go there for a start? So it was May holidays. We were both teaching at the time. We got on a plane, flew to Whakatane, and we said, now what? We went and we said, well, perhaps we'll go to the museum. We went to the museum and we went up to this guy behind the counter and said, oh, we've come here looking for family members. He said, well, what are some of the names? He said, well, we said, well, Hinapo is a name, one of our family names. He said, there are a lot of Hinapo around here. He said, why don't you go out to Poroporo, Marae, and go and see, there's an elderly woman out there, her name is Ina Chamberlain, Maori woman, and she will, she'll tell you. So we went out, found her where she was living, knocked on her door, and this elderly much older than us, um, woman came out, very familiar looking, sort of kind of, you know, Mackay bishopy look, and um, and we, she said, "What do you boys want?" And we were quite flattered by that. And <laughs> we said, "Well, actually, we're looking for descendants of my our grandfather, who na- his name was Benjamin Mackay." And she said, "Well, you can't be." We said, why not? And they said, she said, he died without issue. I said, no, he didn't. He had five children, and my, our mother was his youngest. And she stopped, and she said, well, come on inside. So we went in, and we found that Ina was short for Hinapo. She was Hinapo. And she, her, uh, her, grand, her grandmother was our grandfather's sister. And so we were connected all as grandparents. And she said, you know, there were 12 of them. And so a few years later, my brother was involved in um, organising, helping to organise a family reunion. And we had this big reunion up at Port Waikato. And they said if every descendant of this woman turned up, there'd be 6,000 people there. Luckily, they didn't. (laughs) And I met this cross, this, you know, this kind of um, cross-section of New Zealand society who were all my relatives. And there were Maori people who spoke Maori and didn't speak English very well. There were white guys. It was just incredible. And we spent like the whole weekend together just talking to each other and spending time with each other. And these very, very dark Maori women came up and they took me by the hand and said, we never thought we'd have a cousin as white as you. (laughs) And, you know, it was just the most moving, wonderful experience. And that's something I've never really forgotten. And it's something I'm still trying to, you know, get out of my system by putting it into into my books. So that's that's where it all comes from. It's all coming from that. Um, So, anyway... There she is. Um, there's, there's my granddad. That's, that's, um, these two are the children, many, many years later, of her. Okay. These are two of her children. That's my granddad, and that's my great-aunt um, Catherine or Katerina. I wrote about her. 
Um, and they were the two that went down south, and they really lost contact with all the others up north. And, um, but now we've made contact with a lot of those people, and we keep in touch and, and so on. But we live in different worlds. We live in totally different worlds. I mean, I couldn't go and comfortably move into their world, and they couldn't come and comfortably live into mine. But we know each other exists, and we, we, we communicate, but that's about it, really. And that's what New Zealand's like. You know, it's, 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 I find it endlessly fascinating. And, this, of course, this is the book I wrote about my great aunt, and this is a book that I made up entirely, hoping people might think it was a real legend called Hinepo, using family name, Hinepo. And she occurs again in that. Um, I'll tell her. And I think we've got Piano Rock as well. Piano Rock is <clears throat> about my childhood. Um, and set in the 1950s. So this is just another sort of looking at my family have been a constant source of ideas for stories. It's not because they were particularly extraordinary people. It's just that I think you've probably all experienced this, but sitting around the dinner table on a Sunday, uh, midday, over the roast, mum and her sisters, if they were there, they would sit and talk about the family and talk about people who died in the past. And we get the same stories over and over and over and over. And every week they'd repeat the same stories, almost word for word. And it would drive us kids nuts. You know, we couldn't wait for them to stop. But when I'm now their age, I look back and think, wow, those stories are very, very interesting. And so this is part of that sort of process. Uh, Piano rock, of course, is an actual rock. And you can see it when you go to Kingston. Some people are nodding, they've seen it. If you stand down um, at a particular part on the flat in Kingston and look up, it's up there. And it sort of looks like an old upright piano. It's slumped a bit to one side. Um, And this is the school that I went to. And that's me right in the middle holding the banner that my mum had made for the school sports. And the boy... Just next to me, his name was John Bell, and he was particularly pissed off because I got to hold the banner because I was the tallest. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the book here. In fact, you, you, your kids, I think, uh, I have to be very sad to say or ashamed to say that this sat in my, my to-read list for a long time, and I read it just before uh, the last couple of days. It's a fantastic book. And I think the other thing about this is there's two things going on here, Gavin, I think. One is I think we can really clearly understand where Aotearoa is coming from in terms of your personal history and your New Zealand. And and it's not only that, it's just just been reflected so much in these other books where, and here I I was really touched by things like the Roman candle, Fireworks and things yeah. like that, of course, which all came from my childhood when yeah, I was growing yeah, yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. But your interest, I know, in uh, in that sort of Kiwiana, or at least sort yeah. of, um, and also the design heritage and the history of New Zealand is very has been there for a long, long time, yeah, with you, yeah. hasn't it? Yeah. And I think that's reflected very much in your books as well. Yeah. Listen, mate, we're running a bit short of time. We I are. want you. 
through to, really I'm quickly, get, flick, flick through your one. last book, yeah, this and is, then we're going to open it up for some questions. Yeah, this is a kind of promo for my next book. <laughs> um, I've just finished this, and it's just gone off to be printed. Um, it's a wildlife of Aotearoa. It's a companion piece to Aotearoa, New Zealand story. It's really like the history of New Zealand uh, told through the eyes of animals and insects and, and so on. So these are just a few sample pages. I'm just going to flick through them quickly. Uh, the pages, again, are very similar to Aotearoa, but they look at specific areas of New Zealand and the creatures, insects, birds, uh, and so on, that live in those areas. And again, you can see the wonderful job that the designers have done to squeeze all that text in and make it look comfortably in place. Um, and actually, this is one of the pictures again that the designer decided should be darker, which she did. She didn't ask me, but I didn't mind. <laughs> she sent it back and said, oh, I made it a bit darker. So it looked more like the bottom of the sea. I said, oh, thank you. It does look much better <laughs> than my effort. <laughs> it does. <clears throat> and freshwater fish. Again, honestly, I knew nothing when I started this book. I was I knew nothing. I didn't know anything about freshwater fish. I didn't know there were five different kinds of white bait. I didn't know there were five different, you know, um, little um, things that came from freshwater New Zealand native fish. And I didn't also know that a lot of freshwater fish spend a lot of time at sea. They go out to sea to breed and grow and stuff and then come back to the rivers and things. So I was learning a huge amount. Uh, and again, a bit like Aotearoa, there's a theme that holds the whole book together. <clears throat> In Aotearoa, it's the Hinepo Wairua that appears on all the pages to continue the book, hold the book the whole together. In this story, we've got five long-finned eels who, who f- swim through the whole book and finally end up in a lake where they live and grow for the rest of their lives until it's time to leave and go and breed up in the North Pacific. That's it. Fantastic. Um, Good time. Right. No, yeah, that's not too bad. Right. So what we'd like to do now is um, open the floor to any questions that people might like to have to ask Gavin about his books or about his um, family history or anything that relates to it. What comes first, the uh, the writing or the illustration? Writing. Some people think that the writing in a picture book is more important than the illustrations, but it's not. It's just like the skeleton. It's it's like the foundations of a house, really. Um, it's just there to pin all these other ideas onto. Um, and it's not reflected sometimes in reviews of picture books. You sometimes read a review of a picture book and you hear all about the author, nothing about the illustrator, mm. which is totally misleading about what a picture book is and how it works as a storytelling procedure. Sorry, that was a long wind of it. A little bit of political well, response yeah, as far there. As illustration, yeah. that's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. Got another question in for the back. What tools do you use for illustrating? I'm entirely old-fashioned in my picture-making. I use pencils and pens and ink and watercolour. And I draw everything 
Each one of these pictures, like this, would have been drawn probably five or six times. So what I do is I get a bit of paper, draw it all out. First of all, draw it all really, really roughly, really, really roughly, very, very, very quickly. It's just a scribble. And I get put things into place. Then I take another piece of paper and I rule up the size of the page and sketch it all out quite accurately. Then I get a piece of tracing paper. Nobody in their right mind uses tracing paper anymore, but I do. Tracing paper over the top, trace it all off, and then I scribble all over the back of the tracing paper and then like, use like a carbon and then transfer that to a piece of watercolour paper which I've previously stretched wet and stretched onto a board. Then I draw over that big drawing and transfer it, and then I draw it onto the watercolour paper, adjusting things if they need to be all the time. Then I'll take a pen and draw the lines in with ink. I don't know if you really need to do that, but that's how I work. And then... I wash the whole thing down, clean off all the all, pencil first, then I wash the whole thing with a kind of a light, yellowy, warm wash. And that comes from my days, Robin will recognise this, comes from our days, so will Peter, uh, from our days at art school when we were encouraged to warm up our whites in our paintings. And I haven't got rid of that, I can't get rid of it. I can't just paint white onto the page, That's, ooh, it's too bright. And I can't just use plate straight black to paint on. I have to modify it slightly, put another colour into it. And that's all because of early training, thousands of years ago. <laughs> <laughs> and then I paint the whole thing in, and I paint it and paint it and stuff. And I, some people say, well, why don't you just, at that stage, scan it onto a computer and then add colour on the computer? Well, I can't do that because I don't know how to do it. But I also, I think I'd miss, I'd miss the tension and the concentration that's demanded when I'm actually painting. When I'm actually painting, you actually have to really, really think about what you're doing. You can't just sit there and pick up a brush and go, da 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 You know, paint away, sort of think, oh, this is lovely. I'm really enjoying myself, really relaxed and having a great time. It's not. It's awful. Because... Anything go wrong at any time. <laughs> Anything go wrong, you think, damn, I've got to fix that or redo the whole thing. There also, I have to say, um, just to talk about what you, you know, just to illustrate it. Yeah. Excuse the pun. Um, it's a serendipitous sort of things that happen with the ink. Yeah, so the watercolour, right. you right. can't control, but often are often yeah. very beautiful. Yes, they are. And they, they add a lot of life and um, yeah. energy to you. To yeah, and you hope it's going to happen, don't you? That's right. That's and you right. hope it's not going to go... No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it's not going to go all... Yeah, yeah that's right. But, but I mean, I think that's really important, is that mm. you need to take a few gambles and you take do. a few risks. You do. And I have to say sometimes, uh, this is a personal opinion, I have to say, I'm going to row my own boat here a little bit, yeah. is that often with computer-generated... Illustration. Yes. Is that there's a real um, tendency, or I, I suppose, a, 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 well, the opportunity is there for you to just use everything. Yeah. You know, all the colours, all the lines, yeah. all of yeah, this, yeah, all yeah. of that. So you just turn off all the knobs on everything that's going on in the picture, and it just yeah. goes. It doesn't have the 
was perhaps the um, integrity no. of that handmade kind of feel, that yeah. hum, the human feel that goes into the work. And that's I, what I, I, I really admire about your work, Gavin, is that right. it has that really um, lovely feel to it. Also, um, you, this, you get a range of drawing standards in a, in a work too. Sometimes some bits work really, really, really well and you think, wow, I really, I'm really pleased with a bit of drawing. But then I look through these works and think, God, I hate that thing. I hate that drawing. I'd like to redraw that. I'd like to fix that bit up. I'd like to, it's too late. 4,000 copies of that book out there with all those, all those mistakes repeated <laughs> all over the place. But that's another part of, of this, what we're talking about, isn't mm. it? Is that you get that range of um, things that happen accidentally and, or, or you're not feeling particularly good that day or you can't see, sometimes you can't see what you've done. Mm. You draw something, you think, oh, I think that looks all right. And then you look at it sometime later and you think, Hell, that's terrible. Wish I could do redraw that, but you can't. Too late. <laughs> <laughs> Have we got any other questions? Yes, here we go, young fella. Sorry, the one on. I don't know your name, so I have to point rudely. Um, do you have a favourite illustrator? Uh, oh. <laughs> 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 Well, I, I, won't, I won't mention any New Zealand. <laughs> but for many, for many years, I was very fond of Morris Sendak. You know, where the wild things are and things like that. Um, I do admire uh, a lot of his books. And, I used, and as, a, as an early, as a younger illustrator, I used to find those very helpful and inspirational. And I'd look at them for support and ideas. But I like some of the old illustrators too. The person that I discovered, I knew, I knew about his work, but somebody I discovered with a lot more understanding was Rollinson, Thomas Rollinson. Because oh, yeah. he was a contemporary of James Cook. And he was drawing sort of satirical, oh, fantastic um, stuff. wonderful yeah, yeah. satirical, cartoony, cartoony yeah, type yeah, right, drawings yeah. of... British society at exactly the same time that Cook was travelling around the coasts of New Zealand. And that's where I got the idea of using speech bubbles. Mm. Uh, I thought I'd use speech bubbles because he used speech bubbles a lot. Um, And I just loved them. And I bought a great big fat book of his work and spent a lot of time looking at it. So, you know, inspiration for your own work comes from all over the place. And I really do like David stuff. So. <laughs> I have to say that. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm no, not going to sum up nicely. I genuinely do. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a young, young fella here. Do you have a question as well or somebody else? Oh, sorry. How many people went to the family reunion? Hundreds and hundreds. Yeah, hundreds and hundreds. Lots and lots and lots. And quite a few of them were um, connected to Turanga Waiwai, where at the time the Maori Queen uh, was consort. Do you know Turanga Waiwai? Have you heard of Turanga Waiwai? Well, it's a, it's a big marae in the Waikato where the kingi tanga, or the king, there's a, there's a Maori king now, but at the time of our family reunion, there was a Maori Queen. She didn't actually live on that marae, but she had a house there, but she lived in Huntley, but that's where her marae was. 
So um, a lot of people who worked on that marae were part of our family as well. They came along. It was a very exciting occasion. I hope you keep on writing Thank you very for much. these children because they absolutely love it. Thank you very much. Particularly indeed. the quakey cat. Thank you very much. I'd just like to say that the, the quakey cat, all the royalties from quakey cat help support Painted Stories, the Children's Illustration Trust. Well, I think since we've got to 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, um, well, I'd just like to thank you, Gavin. I'm going to read this again until I just spent a bit of a time thinking about it last night. Um, Gavin, thank you for sharing your world for us with us here today. I knew that you would do a fantastic job uh, for giving us an insight into the complex machine of a book like Aotearoa, uh, the care for weaving of images and information and, and your personal stories. Uh, the foundation for a book that was set long ago, um, not only in your own books about the history of New Zealand, your New Zealand family, but also in your fascination with period design and heritage here in New Zealand. And I still remember your devastation at the damage done to your beloved Christchurch um, during the quakes. I'd also think we should thank you for your messages you have left for our children about the future of Aotearoa. And that's something why we didn't have them touched on today. But when you get the book, and hopefully you will get the book in a minute when you go out to the signing desk out there, there's some lovely messages in the last couple of spreads of that book um, about the future of Aotearoa as a multicultural cult- country, a country that honours its treaty obligations, and a country where we will wake up to the environmental problems that we face mm-hmm. and do something about them. Um, so, Gavin, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, David. And as I said, um, Gavin will be going out there now um, to sign books at the UBS bookstore for you. Thank out you. There. So thank thanks you again. Much. Thanks for coming. This Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival recording was brought to you with funding from a copyright licensing New Zealand grant and with the support of ORFM. The festival receives help from many corners, but we'd like to give special thanks to our major funders, Creative New Zealand, the Dunedin City Council, the Otago Community Trust and the Lion Foundation.